Thanks, James. If I were to ask you, and I'm going to, what your biggest idol is, what would you say? I don't mean a totem pole somewhere with like a face of an eagle and a face of a bear and a face of a badger and a face of a prairie dog. I don't mean that, right? I don't mean a little wooden statue or a statue carved from marble sitting on your mantle somewhere. Most of us are far too sophisticated and advanced for such things. But I mean the stuff that's down deep, not external stuff. What's your biggest idol? Is it ego? Is it pride? Is it money? Is it, is it sex? What, what is it? If you had to diagnose your greatest idol or your collection of idols, what would you say? If you had to diagnose the idols of our culture, or perhaps even the globe more broadly, what would you say? It's true, I think, that love of self and love of money and love of sex and love of other kinds of things are rampant in our own hearts and in the hearts, of course, of of men and women everywhere. But fundamentally, I think beyond all of that is what we might call the idolatry of self. And one way or another, you and I are infected with a disease, and it is the idolatry of self. Now, we'll talk about this more in just a moment, but if we have been brought into communion with Christ, if we have been given new hearts, if we have been made participants in what we call the new covenant, this disease will not kill us. We know that the diagnosis for us, the prognosis for those that are in God's family is no longer death, but it is life. But the crippling effects of that disease remain. Polio in our Western culture has primarily been eradicated. Whenever you travel to some third world countries, in fact, those of us who went to Africa recently, we were encouraged to get a polio vaccine, which sounds weird to us. Like, we don't even think about that anymore. But it's pretty rampant still in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Occasionally, if you run into somebody who's relatively advanced in years, you might see them with a bit of a limp or some sort of crippling effect in their gait or in their body. And you might find from time to time that they suffer from polio whenever they were children. Now, polio won't kill them because in some ways they were cured from it or the manifestation of the disease was somehow minimized. But nevertheless, the, the scars remain, if you will, the effects remain. And I think that's true for us, even those of us in whom the prognosis of death has been eradicated and the prognosis of life has instead been replaced, but yet their crippling effects of the idolatry of self remain for us. So today, we are going to take some time to look at what many call the one another passages of the New Testament. I've entitled this teaching time today, The Idolatry of Self and the Call of the Gospel. Now, we are a little bit removed from what we typically do here whenever we go through books verse by verse. We're going to start that again in the very beginning of February whenever we approach the book of Genesis. Genesis is 50 chapters, which is way more than any book we've ever done before. 
but because of the nature of Genesis, we'll take it in large chunks. So don't fret, Genesis won't take us 10 years, okay? Um, but before we get to that, I want to cover some topical things over the next few weeks, and that's healthy and good for us. So today we're going to talk about the idolatry of self and the call of the gospel, how this relates to the way that we glorify God in the body, in, in the church, this thing we call the body of Christ. Over the next couple of weeks after this week, we're going to talk about the need for us to have attention to God's Word and have attention to prayer, both individually and corporately. But before we get to that, I feel it's important for us to talk about how we can have a gospel-centered community that glorifies God and brings real, authentic, rich joy to all of us. As we prayed for Paul as we welcomed him into membership just a bit ago, one of the things that I was praying there is that we are reminded that the relationships that we have one another and with one another are grounded in grand realities. That is to say that we are image bearers, and theologians for centuries now have tried to answer the question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? If you were asked to answer that, what would you say? The fact that we have hands and feet, and on those hands and feet there are ten fingers and ten toes, and we have two eyes and one mouth and a nose that smells and ears that hear and different portions of our brain that perform different functions of memory and motor function and an endocrine system and a digestive system and a circulatory system, and, and all these things work in harmony. Is that the way that we're created in the image of God, that we have bodies that work that way? Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because God doesn't have a body. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Perhaps the best definition I've ever heard is that to be created in the image of God means that all the ways that we are like God are a manifestation or a demonstration of the fact that we are created in His image. That is to say, we are image bearers in the sense that we are like God in many ways. And fundamentally, God is a trinity. Now, that whole doctrine, though it is true, is admittedly mind-blowing. And this means that before the world was ever created, there existed a Trinitarian God that had perfect communion among themselves. John chapter 17 manifests this when Jesus says to the Father in His high priestly prayer, I do not ask for these only His disciples, as this is who He's talking about, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that means us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent Me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, and Jesus goes on from there. So, I, I want you to, to take a moment. I know you're already tired, and we're like 12 days into the new year, and I know it's hard to think, and I know Paul's right. Sometimes some of the things I say are a little deep. I know that, but try, try to meditate on this for a moment. I think we can say without any hesitation, that at least one of the implications of what Jesus is saying here about the union that He has always enjoyed with the Father, 
and the union that He desires for all of His people to have with Him and with the Father and, of course, with the Spirit, that one of the implications of that is that God made the world to show what He is like. And because Jesus, one chapter later, is going to be arrested and then crucified, I think we can likewise say with all certainty that at least one of the major purposes of redemption, of the cross of Jesus Christ, is that we will know what the Trinity is like. Let me try to make that just a little bit more simple. Why did God make the world? To show that He is a love-giving being. He is fundamentally that way. He wasn't made that way because He wasn't made. He's that way inherently. And the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have eternally shared has now overflowed in this thing that we call creation. He made humanity primarily to display His love upon them. In the world, God shows all kinds of His attributes, His righteousness and His justice. But I think we can say because of the message of the Scriptures, the thing that God delights in showing the most is His glorious love and grace. That's why He made the world. He didn't have to make us, but He did. It's the overflow of His love. It keeps brimming out the top of the cup, and it never stops. Of course, the fall of humanity brought all of that into question. You have all these fallen beings that keep reproducing. Will they forever live in opposition to this life-giving, love-sharing God? Redemption all the more shows that God delights in causing that love to brim over the top. That is to say, God was not surprised by the fall of mankind, but designed the world in such a way that if these opposers, these sinners, these rebels, these lost wandering ones would ever appreciate and enjoy this kind of love, it would necessarily demand that God would sacrifice Himself in love. So, without any hesitation, John 17 and many other passages, in fact, the very tenor of Scripture, the fabric of all of the words of the Bible proclaim to us that God made the world to show His love. And God sent His Son to rescue the world that that love might be definitely, eternally enjoyed by His people. Now, that might be a little bit deep, but you've got to get that down in you. That has to form the fabric of your thinking. It has to be the filter through which you look at God. And then I think by extension, it has to be the filter through which you look at each other. If Adam and Eve in the garden were tempted with the idolatry of self, Satan knew what would get at them because he knew what had gotten to him. 
and he held it out to them as this juicy-looking piece of fruit, which I think is just a metaphor. Not that the fruit wasn't real. I probably held a piece of fruit. But that the thought behind it was real. As they gazed at that fruit, a deeper reality, a, a sinister reality was behind it. Because as the serpent spoke with a forked tongue, it sounded to them like delight. And the world was cast into the eternal, bottomless pit of the idolatry of self. But a rescuer was promised right away. And our parents were clothed, both of them, in righteousness as a promise that redemption would come. And the call of the gospel to Adam and Eve immediately was that though the sinister snake was there and had tempted them into this sort of alluring idea that they could have themselves as their own deities, God came along and said, there is a better way. You can be renewed. And as Jesus says these words to the Father in John 17, He's asking the Father to make them all one again. The promise is about to be ratified. And now for us who are recipients of this gospel, the idolatry of self, even if the prognosis for us is no longer death, remains. So what do we do with all of that? Why this? Why now? Well, we find ourselves at the beginning of a new year. I think all of us like the idea of of community. We like to call this collection of people a church family. We like to use phrases like, we want to do life together. We, we like to use phrases like, we have good community or we have deep friendships. It's why we, it's why we have a hierarchy of friendships, right? Like you, if somebody comes to you and says, well, do you know John? And I'm speaking generically of John. Do you know John? And you say, yeah, I know John. Well, what's your relationship with John? Well, you might say, well, I know John casually. That's a cliche we use here in the Western world. Or you might say, John is an acquaintance of mine. If you work with John, you might say, John is my colleague. If you're familiar with John, if he's your acquaintance or if he's your colleague, that means he, you just know him. He's in your circle of friendship. He's like in the outermost ring. But there's another ring. You might say, well, well, John is a friend of a friend. That means he's a little more dear than a colleague. There's, there's another inner ring. Well, John's in my close circle of friends. And then you have like the innermost core of the circle, especially if you're a girl. And you have what's called a BFF, right? Now, you might have a few BFFs if you're really, really lucky. Guys, don't ever talk like this, right? But, but you might have one, and you might have two or three. And, and, and those people are the people that you're closest to. They're the ones who know all your warts. I mean, the colleagues will run away from you. The friends of friends will think you're bizarre. The people in your closer circle of friends like to hang out with you and watch football and eat wings and whatever, but your BFFs are not supposed to run away from you. We, we have this sort of 
descending and ascending circle of friendships. But the problem for us is that those change from time to time, don't they? Colleagues can become closer friends. Your BFFs that you thought would never, ever turn their backs on you sometimes do. And, and round and round we go. Well, why is that? Well, it's true broadly because the world is infected with the idolatry of self. We love ourselves. We, we want to be the center of the universe. And when, when you're doing that and when I'm doing that, we necessarily are going to hurt one another. So our relationships fail all around us. But it happens, of course, in the Christian realm as well, in the church, because we're still infected with the remnants of that. We're still scarred by it. We still limp because of it. And therefore, as much as we say we love community, as much as we say we love to have friends, you and I are the problem. And it's important for us from time to time to face who we are and to purpose by the power of God's Spirit and because of the beautiful implications of the gospel, to live differently. We're going to look at four categories today of these one another passages. There's around 40 of them, a few more than that. So, if you take the time to do this in your own Bible, it's easy to do it online if you have maybe the ESV study Bible online or some other version that you use. You can type in the phrase, one another. And there's a little over 40. Some of them don't quite fit into this category because they're just sort of a, an oblique reference to what we do to one another. But there's a, around 40 passages that are relevant to this idea of how we love one another or how we serve one another or, or how we don't sin against one another. And in analyzing those, I think there's sort of four broad categories that we can look at today that will help us. So let's look at the first one. We are to love one another. More than any other of the commands to one another in some way, this is the most prevalent one. And it's important that we talk about it first because it is the foundation. So this first category of loving one another is going to remind us to do just that, to, to, to love one another. And then the third, the second, third, and fourth categories, the last three, are going to give us practical examples of how to do that. But first, I would just want to put in front of us the idea that we are to love one another, and I want you to remember that this is an implication of the very nature of our God Himself. He loves us because He has always loved Himself. That's what the Trinity is. They love each other, and then He made us to do the same. So, fundamentally, as we love one another, we reflect the glory of our Creator. John chapter 13 is one of the most well-known. Jesus says to the disciples, not long before He will pray this prayer in John 17, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul's testimony about you today was that he sees you loving him and each other. This is a demonstration that the love of Christ is in you. Now, is Jesus saying that love did not exist before this, that He had never called His people to love? No. For Jesus Himself says that the summary of the law is to love God and to love one another. And frankly, I think we can say that we vertically love God by horizontally loving one another. What Jesus is saying here is that the gospel that He's about to enact 
the promise that He is about to keep by offering Himself as a conquering Redeemer is about to come into brand new light. For at the cross and through the resurrection, we find in Jesus true and real love. So, I think He's saying to them, as you reflect on this night and what I have said to you and what's about to happen to me tomorrow, you're finally really going to understand that everything that's ever been said by God to humanity was pointing to this moment, and it's all about love. So, love each other. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, and we do for you. Notice this is not paltry. It's not thin. It's not brittle. It's not static or stationary. It's ever increasing. And if it's true that we will never exhaust the love of God, it should be that we as His people are growing always in love for one another, which means that probably we could rehearse this sermon once a month, if at least not once every January, to remind each other that it's time to love some more. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, who knew what it was like to be loved by a Savior whom he had rejected, he says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You know what will inevitably happen whenever you live near one another? And I don't necessarily mean geographically because in our suburban world we're spread out. It's just reality. We're not going to be able to build a commune and live behind fort walls. But metaphorically speaking, we are to live in proximity to one another. Guess what happens when when that happens? Guess what happens whenever you bring idolaters of self into close communion with one another? Even if the prognosis for those people is no longer death, in, in other words, they're no longer slaves to being idols of self, but that, that still manifests itself. That is to say, we don't have to sin, but we still sin. Guess what happens? You will sin against one another. One of the things that's interesting to me as a pastor, if not just a man generally, is to see people be surprised by sin. And when sin enters the equation and you hurt one another, to watch people act like that's a brand new concept, like they're shocked by it. Whenever we do premarital counseling with people, my wife and I, one of the things we tell them is, we're going to tell you a lot of things now, we're going to try to help you along, but in so many ways, some postmarital counseling would be much better for you. We try to have those people in and check on them and see how they're doing. Because when they finally start living together, even though they think they already know anything, everything, they realize this is kind of tough. I mean, he was really handsome, and, and I could see his abs, like, you know, because like, it's okay to swim together occasionally as long as your parents are there. I don't know, I'm speaking. You know, so, like, you saw him whenever he was 19, and, and you started loving him then, and he had a six-pack back then, right? And he took you to nice restaurants, and he would hold your hand and listen to you. And, and, and she was pretty and cute, and she never wore sweatpants, right? And, and, and she thought you were fantastic and wrote poems to you. But then you get married, and the sweatpants come out, and, you know, he eats wings too much, and the abs have been covered up by a layer of something that 
They'll never be seen again. And then you start thinking, well, you know, you don't love me like you used to, and you're not the same guy I dated. And, and, and then it's like, can we really get along? Is this going to work? Marriage is a good metaphor for the church, isn't it? Paul uses it. The Father has given us the Son to be the bridegroom and has welcomed the church to be the bride. But in this marital-type relationship, we are going to sin against one another. So we have to keep loving one another earnestly. That means it's active. You choose to love. Love is not just emotion. Love is active. Love is a choice. And when you sin, love covers it. 1 John chapter 4, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is proof that, that the one who has made us in His image is in us and, and renewing us and making us His own. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. That's the fundamental identity of who He is and who He has always been. He has created us and is now rescuing us through the gospel to rid us of the idolatry of self that we might manifest His great and precious attributes. So we are to love one another. That's the big foundational category. We are to love one another. Do you? Another thing I prayed a bit ago is that we're not alike. I would love for us to have some more ethnic diversity. We've had some in the past, and People have had to move on to other places. Right now, we're mostly just a bunch of white people. Um, it's a little boring. I, I wish we had some more diversity, but it's kind of a reflection of our community. Maybe God will change that in time to come. Maybe that's something to pray about this year. You can't manufacture it. But reality is, whether we have different skin colors or different religious backgrounds, we're vastly different. Realize that? Some of us are nerds. Some of us are jocks. Some of us are super cute. Some of us are less cute. That might shock you, but it's just true, right? Just cute people. I'm in, I'm in the not cute category. I've learned to be okay with it. I have a cute wife, right? Whatever. Um, some of us have like super smart kids. Some of our kids are kind of average. Some of our kids will play high school sports and maybe get a scholarship. Some of our kids couldn't throw a ball with either hand if you paid them. Some of us are grumpy. Some of us have never had a hard day in our life, it seems. Some of us are optimists. Some of us are pessimists. Some of you optimists and pessimists are married to each other. Some of you are frugal. Some of you are spenders. Some of you serve very naturally. Some of you have a hard time giving to other people. Some of you like to be alone. Some of you thrive on being together. We're very, very different. And you might mask that in an assembly like this by saying we all kind of look alike. We have the same skin color. We have around the same kind of earning potential, whatever. But, but when it really comes down to it and you peel back sort of the external layers, we're very different. And therefore, we are called in that context to practice real love. Not sappy sentimentality, but the real genuine thing. Practically speaking, how do we do it? Well, I think here's three categories that show us. The first category is what we might call the putting off of idolatry category. So we are to put off the idolatry of self that divides one another. There are several times in the New Testament where we're said not to do things to one another. 
This is the category under which those fall. Here's a few to think about. First, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So there's a few of these that are negative. So we're not to do these things, and I guess by extension we would say do the opposite. So in this category we're saying put off the idolatry of self that divides one another. Paul says in Galatians 5, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see what happens whenever you idolize self, whenever you are the center of your proverbial universe? Your pride wells up. And then, as you bump up against other people who are doing the same thing, you provoke one another. And sin is the norm. And then you envy one another. And you create, by your sin and the sin of your brothers and sisters, a nasty environment that no one wants to be in. That's what the world's like. The church is not supposed to be like that. The reality is, from time to time, it will be like that, which is why we have to fight by the power of God's Spirit. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See that? See that there? God made us in His image, but as marred image bearers that idolize self rather than the Creator, what do we do? In an effort to preserve our little kingdoms where we are the deity of those kingdoms, we lie to one another to posture and preserve the image that I'm perfect. But I am being renewed to the original design. The Creator is reestablishing His image in me where I don't have to lie because if I screw up or if I sin or if I fail you, I'm not surprised and you're not surprised. And remember, love covers a multitude of sin, which calls us to be honest with one another, even if it costs each other. Titus chapter 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What happens when little little idolaters of self establish their own kingdoms and love each other, and love themselves? You You know what they want? You know what they crave? They crave the adoration of everyone around them. They have this sort of faulty belief that if they can set up their own little kingdom of self and elevate themselves on a throne where they posture and sort of make themselves out to be worth the praise or worthy of the praise of everyone around them, that everyone will kind of follow them and adore them. But the problem is that everybody around you is doing the same thing. And the person who has the little fort next to you, and they're on their throne behind their walls in their fort, and they're waiting for you to come, on, come in and like fan them and, and fan you and give you grapes and, and give you whatever you want and, and make sure that your turkey and your, your pig with the apple in it and your Brussels sprouts with bacon and your 
goblet of wine and all that's prepared on the table for your lunch and for your dinner. You're, you're waiting for them to come serve you that way. Guess what? They're waiting over in their fort for the same thing. And then you're, you're lobbing missiles at each other and like boiling lava pots at each other, trying to burn each other's forts down so that you can conquer them so they'll come worship you. And then round and round you go. That's the reality of life. That's who you used to be. But the problem from time to time is though that fort has been torn down by Jesus, that you sort of dig around in the ashes looking for a few timbers that are maybe still viable, and you want to start building that again and setting up your table and waiting for the pig with the apple. It's nasty, which is why we have to remember who we were and how ugly and dissatisfying that was. James chapter 4 James says, do not speak evil against one another. How are you doing with that one? Now, again, these three categories, I'm just giving you some practical examples of how to love one another. These commands come out in front of us so that we will know how to do this. When's the last time you spoke evil against one another? Was it five weeks ago? Five days ago? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This does not mean that we can never call each other out on anything. It doesn't mean that we can't point stuff out. But it means that we cannot set ourselves up as the ultimate authority, especially whenever we have a beam in our own eye. So easy, as we see in Matthew chapter 7 to notice the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye, but to dismiss or totally ignore the log that is in your eye. Think about this for a moment. James talks about this, frankly, in his epistle to not gossip and to, to not have an evil tongue. He says there that if you're able to bridle the tongue, you can bridle the whole body. That means that maybe you could cast off all your other sins, but the tongue would remain this fiery member that would be hard to quench. One of the manifestations of maturity as a Christian is that you stop gossiping and stop slandering, but that one is so difficult, partially because it's private, and I think perhaps even more fundamentally because it feels so good. Because ultimately what you're doing is you're comparing yourself to other people. And though you may inherently know the deficiencies that are in your own heart, you're always going to find somebody that has deficiencies that you don't have. And if you can illuminate their deficiencies and minimize or mask your own, you feel better about yourself. But isn't that fundamentally sort of opposed to the gospel? In the gospel, we are reminded that God does not accept us because we're perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. That means that God accepts us not on the basis of who we are or what we have done, but because of who His Son is and what He has done, which should free us from having to constantly compare ourselves to one another. Because guess what? There's always going to be someone smarter than you, wiser than you, stronger than you, better looking than you, richer than you, but ultimately, they rise or stand 
not because of their efforts or not because of their inherent abilities, but because of Jesus. So think about the gospel. Think about what God has done through the gospel. He's rescuing you from the idolatry of self that you may worship Him. And in so doing, He's freeing you to love one another and stop making yourself the center of the universe. So this category reminds us that there's certain things that we should no longer be doing to one another because of the rescue that Jesus has provided for us. So love one another. Put off the idolatry of self that divides one another. The third category today is perhaps one of the most practical ones because there's a lot that fall under it. We are to put on gracious affection for one another. So a lot of the one another passages fall under this category. I'll give you some examples. I'll kind of tick through these carefully and in and of themselves are just very practical. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Just like we have to keep loving one another earnestly, we have to practically, earnestly, deliberately, intentionally live in harmony with one another. Because the evil one that has from the beginning loved himself and tempted humanity to love itself will constantly be trying to rend us in two. So we have to live in opposition to that and passionately, deliberately live in harmony with one another. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, you might think of that in like your home, like somebody comes in and you welcome them, but I think this is more of a posture. It's more of a spirit. Think about that. Do you, do you have a welcoming spirit? Think about how people might perceive you. Are you distant? Do you wait for people to come to you? Are you not a people person? Are you the kind of person that, that intentionally, deliberately, because of the way that Jesus, the Son of God, has passionately and warmly brought you into His presence? Does your demeanor your facial expressions, your deliberate choice of words, the way that you spend your resources of time and money and talent, do, do all those things say to people, I want you in my presence because Jesus has welcomed me back to the Father's table. Come be with me. Is that what you're like? Romans 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't know what you'll do with this one exactly. All the churches of Christ greet you. But I think, again, this is sort of a posture of life. Do, do people, when they see you, do they see you lighting up because you're there? We should be that way with one another. Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Give up some of your rights for one another. Use your resources and dispense them on one another. I emailed you all yesterday, but Chris and Joanna Schuler just had their little baby boy, and he's eight or nine weeks early. They think he's going to be fine, but he's going to be in the NICU for several weeks. There are going to be ways to, to serve this family, to give them your time and resources. I mentioned to you that you can talk to Cindy or Linnea. They'll help you know how to best serve them so we can give them their privacy. We'll use these ladies as a channel to get stuff to them, but, but use your resources to serve them. You might say, well, I served last week. Is the, is the cross, this sort of dispensing of God's least gifts, 
Did, did He give us the scraps? He gave us everything. I tell my sons all the time whenever they are fighting with one another, God has given you new hearts that you might serve one another. And they look at me like, like they're already exhausted just hearing that. And I say, you know, you're eight and you're six, get used to it. And it's a privilege. So don't give each other your scraps, give each other your best. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, we've done some pretty bad stuff to each other here. And guess what? We're going to do worse. But it should be the expectation of me to you and you to me and you to each other that when offenses come, even if they be great, that we will forgive one another. And then fundamentally, just be kind. My oldest son right now is struggling with the sin of sarcasm. I don't know where he gets it. His mother is bitingly sarcastic, so it must come from her. It's from me. I am horrible at this, largely because as a teenager, I decided that people would like me if I was funny because I wasn't secure in Christ. The Spirit is battling with me still over this sin. But I say to Jack all the time, buddy, people will primarily like you not because you're funny, but because you're kind. It's very simple, but it's very hard. Be kind to one another. Hebrews 10, and perhaps this is one of the most fundamental of all these passages. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Know that I love you, and I do not say any of this legalistically, but it's hard for us just to be together. I told you last week, I don't love New Year's resolutions. I think sometimes they end up doing the opposite of what they are intended to do. But I encourage you, through the power of the Spirit, even if you don't call it a resolution, to purpose to be together this year. How can you provoke one another to love and good deeds? How can you, how can you stir one another up if you're not together? So be together this year. Try to be here when we worship together. Try to be there in small groups. If you haven't had a chance to join in yet because of schedules and other things, be in them this year. Be together. You need each other. I've already said to you that, that the church is sort of the arena in which all this gets lived out. You, you bump up against each other and certain things get exposed about you. Your laziness gets exposed. Your unfaithfulness gets exposed. Your pride gets exposed. Your lust gets exposed. But you see what God's doing there? He's doing that because He loves you, because He wants to rid you of inferior treasure and replace it with real, lasting, eternal treasure, which is ultimately Himself. So as you become less, as you become less lustful and more worshipful, the body of Christ helps that get revealed and changed. As you become less focused on self and more focused on God and His people, you're, you're replacing inferior treasure that, that leaves you dry and thirsty and replaces it with something that satisfies you. The, the body is the arena in which that stuff gets exposed and worked out. It's good. It's hard, but it's good. You've got to be together, so be together. We are fundamentally lonely people. Where do you find love? in a church where people will love you despite who you are. We're worried that because of our sins, we will 
face not only the condemnation of God, but the condemnation of each other, so we hide. But the church is a reminder that despite our sin, we will love each other, we'll, we'll stick together because that's what God has done for us in Christ. You can't really get that anywhere else. You, you need the church. God did not design us to live independently. As you live independently, and, and I want to say to you that it's possible to live independently and even show up. So, you've got to show up and, and then you've got to do these things. So don't just show up. Show up and do these things. But when you do that and you live individually, whether it's because you've, you've removed yourself from the presence of the body or you, you come but you don't really open your life up, what ends up happening is you become very curved in on yourself. Whereas God created you to have a heart and eyes lifted to the Almighty and worship Him, you end up curving in on yourself and worshiping self. And ultimately, over time, the idolatry of self comes into full bloom, and it's ugly, and it's nasty, and it's dissatisfying. So be together. Have your eyes and hearts lifted to God and extend your hearts to each other. James 5, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Boy, that one's hard, isn't it? And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I, say, I said to you recently that sometimes what we should do is, is measure our inclinations whenever we're considering whether or not we should do a certain thing or another thing, and then do the harder thing. Let me make that a little easier. Sometimes you should do the thing you don't want to do. This might be the hardest one that's been put in the screen in front of you today. Maybe you should do it because it's the one that you struggle with the most, because we posture. We put on the veneer. We want everybody to think everything's okay. Maybe next time, maybe even after our worship time today, somebody says to you, how are you doing, rather than saying, I'm okay. Maybe you should shock them by saying, you know what, I lusted this week. <laughs> They'll be like, I'm sorry I asked you, right? You know, that, that's good luck with all that. But be, be prepared for that if somebody says that to you. And then put your arm around your brother or sister and pray that that idolatry will be replaced with treasuring better things. That's a hard one. Maybe you should think about doing that one first. First uh, Peter chapter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. We've already read that one. Since love covers a multitude of sins, but then there's more. Show hospitality to one another. Open your homes for one another. It doesn't matter if it's not perfectly clean or you don't have perfect food. Your home is your abode. Welcome people into that inner sanctum. Do it without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That means your gifts aren't for you ultimately. That's shocking, right? Your gifts are for other people, after all their gifts. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him being belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why did God give gifts? He gave gifts not so that you'll be elevated and adored, but so that you can serve, and through that, what happens? He gets glory. That's why we do this one another stuff, that the image of the Creator might be manifested. God is glorious. We glorify Him. What's God's glory? I say this to you all the time, but I want it to get down in the fabric of your thinking. God's glory is His greatness. What does it mean to glorify Him? It means to reflect His greatness. He's given you gifts to reflect His greatness. Do it for His glory. First Peter 5, this one's really hard. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That one's tough. Then 
Peter goes on, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. All of us, elders with you, you with elders, you with each other. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Are you submissive to one another? We need to move on so we can finish today. The first broad category was to love one another. God is love. Therefore, we are to love one another. Well, how do we do that? We do that by putting off the idolatry of self that divides one another. There's certain things we shouldn't do to one another. The category that we just saw says to us, speaks to us, proclaims to us that we are to put on gracious affection for one another in all kinds of ways, both in action and in attitude. And the fourth category, which I think is very critical and one that we might leave off if we're not careful, is to persevere together. We are headed toward an eternal rest. I hope we will all make it. I fear that some of us may not. And those words may shock you, but the New Testament speaks that way. Most of us in our small groups either still or have recently finished studying together through the book of Hebrews. And again and again, the writer of that book seems to indicate that the perseverance is not necessarily sure, so he calls them to it. Now, I do not mean by this that you can lose your justification. If you've been justified by Christ, that is a legal declaration. You are no longer under condemnation, and you will reach the end. But I do mean by this that the manifestation of that justification is that you will persevere unto the end. You will worship to the end. So, we are called to help each other do that. Romans 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That is to say, you teach each other God's commands. You remind each other of what God is like. Think about this. When you sin and your brother forgives you, what does your brother remind you of in that moment? When your child, mommy, sins against you and you extend forgiveness to that child, what are you reminding that child of? Brother, when you forgive your brother. Mother, when you forgive your child. You're reminding those people in that moment that God is gracious and merciful and forgiving. You're instructing their hearts. When you see your brother, your sister, your children, your spouse cherishing false treasure, other idols, when you see the idolatry of self welling up in your brother or sister, you come to them mercifully and meekly and kindly and humbly, even submissively, and you say to them, I'm concerned about something I see. I may be misperceiving it. Am I perceiving it correctly? Unfortunately, I think you are, you might say. Well, I'm concerned that you are treasuring yourself or other things other than your God who alone can satisfy you. Let us sit down together and look at the Scriptures and find real treasure and get you on a new path. That's instructing one another. And of course, that's instructing other, one another, hopefully, in the right way. Ephesians 5, we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See again, as we one another, one another, God gets glory, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's interesting here that music helps us do this. When the body of Christ gathers together and we sing together, we're confessing the same thing. This is why it's not okay not to sing. You may, think, you may say, well, I'm tone deaf, or I don't, music's not my thing, I'm more of a book person. 
Well, get over yourself and read Ephesians 5 and just obey, okay? Don't be disobedient. As you sing together, you're, you're helping each other's hearts be lifted to God. You're helping each other persevere, which means that every portion of our liturgy, whether it's a song or a prayer or a sermon or a challenge or a benediction, it's all important. And we gather together not just to listen to one person on Sundays, but to come together and admonish one another. And even music is a gift to do that. 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This means that you are not just out for yourself, you are out for each other. So encourage each other. How do you do this? When you see the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit in another person, tell your brother or sister that. I see mercy in you, the Spirit's at work in you, and I'm so encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. Um, One of my older son's kids' church teachers wrote him a note this week. It's hanging on our fridge. I cannot tell you how much that encouraged my boy and encouraged his parents, that you took the time to encourage my kid. You build him up. You helped him to see that idolizing self will never bring him joy, but to watch his face light up as he sees others affirming goodness of the Spirit in him was so important for his walk. Encourage one another. So critical. We are so inwardly focused that we have a hard time doing this, maybe because we just think it's awkward, but mostly, I think, because we just love ourselves so much, and it's hard to lift our gaze from self to each other. Lift your gaze to each other and encourage one another. Hebrews 3, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, something we all struggle with. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You've got to hang on, and you need each other to do that. And I return at the very end today to what we just read in Hebrews 10. I want, I want to put this back in front of you. I want you to noodle on this and meditate on it this week. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, as we are inclined to do, especially in our culture, I think we could add today as a new sort of filter on top of this. But instead, fighting that, living counter to that, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's coming. We have been given one another that we might persevere until the end. So, I say to you, again, fundamentally, all of this, everything we see, everything we know, God made the world to reflect His one anothering love. And despite the rejection of humanity that that chose the idolatry of self instead, God sent His Son the perfect manifestation of, of being with us, of welcoming us, uh, of, of loving us, affirming us, greeting us, and bringing us back. It's the nature of God to be this way. It brims over. So, how are we as created image bearers now restored to live? We are to love one another. We are to put off the idolatry of self that divides one another. We are to put on the affections that builds each other up and helps all of us together treasure Christ. And then we are to stick together and help each other do that to the end. So will you one another 
this coming year. Lest you think I am all negative today, I, I see so much of this in you, and I'm thankful. Paul is right. This is a unique church family. I've said to you many times, and I'll say it again today, even if I was not employed here, I would want to be part of this church family. It's special. I love to watch you, one another, one another. But I warn you, the idolatry of self, though you are no longer a slave to it, it still rears its ugly head from time to time. Be aware and fight by the power of God's Spirit for His glory and for each other's mutual joy. So much good here to be celebrated and to be thankful for, but a long, long road ahead. So let's one another, one another in the coming year by loving, by putting off the idolatry of self, by, by replacing that with deep affections for one another in action and attitude, and let us hold hands together as we see the day drawing near. Let's stand and we'll pray and we'll sing our last song.